Welcome to the Cybertraps Podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Hello there, Jethro. I am Frederick Green, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyber Ethical Kids, Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. And so, for the 100th time, remarkably enough, hey there, Jethro. Hey, congratulations, 100 episodes. Most podcasts only make it five or six, and here we are with 100. Congratulations. Well, I could truly say, Jethro, that number one, I appreciate the congrats and back at you, but we wouldn't have gotten here without your skill and expertise in this. And, uh, well, what is it, 315 behind the transformative <laughs> principles? <laughs> um, I, I look forward to many, many more useful discussions for educators and others about the risks that we talk about. So it's I'm grateful that I've had the chance to do this. Yeah, I, I am too. Truly, this has been a lot of fun. This has allowed me to get into an area of nerdiness that I don't usually get into. <laughs> and I mean, I'm grateful that you have done so much work that we have nearly an endless supply of information and places to go with all of this. So I'm just, I'm really excited about that. So it's, if you, it's a great partnership, it is. And if you're listening right now uh, and you, and you hear anything that we're saying, we'd love some the congratulations way to go excitement from you. If you're listening, that would be awesome because a lot of times we put this stuff out there into the void. And so we'd love any kind of feedback that you've got to say, congratulations on making it a hundred and that you're actually listening. I mean, I see the download stats and I know people are listening, but it's different when people actually say something. So we'd love to well, love to hear something from you. I absolutely endorse that people can drop us a note on the Facebook page, cyber traps, or they can do it at the Apple podcast, leave us some feedback there, or go old school and just email us directly and we'll be happy to share the word. Yeah. But I, I second what Jethro is saying. Fortunately, I know from the uh, conference that we went to last month, gosh, two months ago, now out in Oklahoma City, that we've got a lot of folks at the PPI and NASDAQ who are listening to this. So a shout out to them. And we will keep spreading the word. There's a lot of work to do still. There sure is. And so with that, we're going to get into our topic today, which is uh, really tragic that we even have to talk about this. But both Fred and I, after reading so many news reports about what happened in Oxford, Michigan, 
decided that we we pretty much can't not talk about this because these are the types of cyber traps that we have been talking about for so long and and now you know sadly there's a perfect example of what happens in the worst possible case when you ignore the the warning signs that we talk about week in and week out here on the podcast yeah i I think that it is um unfortunate that we can't spend the next hour just telling each other how great we are i know right Uh, but, you know, the real world obviously intrudes. And, and as you correctly said, this one is so big and so filled with cyber traps issues that not only are we going to talk about it today, but we're in the process of lining up some really interesting guests to discuss with us different aspects of this particular incident and ways in which schools and educators can hopefully respond in safe and productive ways. Uh, the thing that you know, I'm hoping that people will take away from this particular episode is the extent to which that social media and digital evidence are a part of these kinds of mm-hmm. cases, these kinds of incidents. We're going to go through some basically topic headings over the next hour and give people a quick insight into what we'll be diving into. But it's it's amazing that both before the tragedy that occurred in Oxford And then in the hours and soon to be weeks afterwards, investigators are going to be looking at a ton of social media and digital evidence to try to figure out not only what happened, but whether or not it could have been prevented. And obviously, Jethro, you're going to have a ton of insight on this as someone who was a frontline administrator. Yeah. And and I want to say two things first. Number one. We have intentionally not done current event type stuff, like what's happening in the moment. Um, but we feel like this is one of those things that we really should do. And, it, you know, it bears thinking about why this happened and trying to make sense of it, especially when it looks like things could have been prevented. And we'll talk about some of that. Now, all that being said, this is still fresh, this is still new. We are very likely to take uh, some bad takes on some things that where the information has not been fully released. And, you know, we're not out here judging anybody. We're out here trying to help people see that there are ways to deal with this that doesn't have to end in this kind of a result. Um, and not to say that, you know, the dedicated and hardworking school principals and teachers and everybody involved is... Um, is at fault because this is definitely the young man who did this. He's the one who's at fault for sure. Um, But, you know, I can't imagine what those school personnel are dealing with uh, thinking about all this. Um, And the second point is uh, there's so much in here that we're not going to get to. So again, cybertraps.com slash 100 for the show notes. There's a great outline that Fred has put together with a bunch of resources and so let's get into it. So, um, Fred, do you want to just give us a an overview of what happened um, so that we have what yeah. we know stated clearly? Thanks, Jethro. I think that your admonition uh, regarding not making judgments and not drawing any conclusions too quickly is super important mm-hmm. because obviously there's a legal process that needs to go forward. 
Um, we absolutely are not going to point to any fingers at anybody. We're just going to discuss some issues that we've identified that do merit, I think, further discussion. So I hope people understand that this is an issue-based approach to this as opposed to a individual or, or even organizational approach, mm -hmm. because we don't know those answers just yet. That being said, obviously the bare bones of this particular incident are far too well known that on the morning of November 30th, the Tuesday, I believe it was, I have to double check that because dates have been flying around in my head, but in any case, young man named Ethan Crumley uh, is in school at Oxford High School in Oxford, Michigan. He is called down to the office and is asked to talk with counselors in the presence of his parents because one school teacher reported seeing him searching for ammunition on Google. Another saw a drawing that he had made that was very violent that showed people lying in pools of blood. And there was some language on the drawing that suggested that it was a plea for help on either his part or the individual being drawn. It's a little ambiguous as to what that was. The meeting with the school um, resulted in a request that he received psychiatric counseling within 48 hours and a suggestion that he should go home with his parents. The parents rejected that and Ethan was returned to his class. And sometime in the next two and a half to three hours, he pulled a gun from his backpack and began shooting, apparently uh, discharging between 25 and 30 rounds and in the process, uh, killing four students and wounding several others. Also, there were some minor wounds to one teacher. That's the bare bones of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So then immediately what you begin to see is the investigation into uh, all of the digital evidence that we have available to us now as a society in terms of what might've led him to do this, what factors came into play and so forth. So. Let's start with those bare bones, Jethro. Any, any insight you want to offer in terms of, uh, you know, how the, um, process might've unfolded that I don't know about. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't say much about a principal and it doesn't say that the school searched his backpack, which by all, for all intents and purposes, we believe he had a gun with him while he was talking to the counselor about that. So my suspicion is that, and again, this is unfounded, but just based on practice that I've experienced, is that it is very likely that the school administrators were busy with something else and that this was a student that they knew and that he likely had some other issues that led this to be a counseling conversation rather than an administrative conversation. And there are good reasons for having a counseling conversation instead of an administrative conversation. However, when it rises to the level of drawings of people being shot, of kids searching for ammunition, anything that relates to school-wide school safety, that really comes into the purview of the principal and typically is dealt with by that person. Now, there are lots of restorative practices and other things that are all well-intentioned and good, 
that tried to prevent kids from being suspended from school, but it is not outside of the realm of possibility that this student could be suspended from school pending a an evaluation of some sort by a medical doctor or by a psychologist or a psychiatrist. All of those things are possible. And so just in that situation where a conversation was had and then a couple hours, uh, as far as we know, uh, he he did that horrible act, there, sh- there could have been many other things that could have happened. And so, you know, we don't, we don't know all the answers to that or anything like that, but just that aspect. And this goes into one of the things we talk about, which is a, an expectation of privacy and a school, yeah. yeah, a school district official has the responsibility and ability and permission to search a student's backpack when they feel like they need to. The burden of proof for that is much less than what law enforcement has. And to illustrate that, let me tell you, give you a very specific example. We had a situation where a student brought something inappropriate to school, something that it was illegal for them to possess. And we called the police department and said, what do we do with this? We think that they have it. <clears throat> and the police officer said, I'm serious. He said, well, it's better if you search and find it because you don't need the kind of proof, the, the kind of supporting documents or evidence that we need. You can just go search any kids you want. And that is okay for you to do. And essentially, when we talked to the school district lawyer, he said, yeah, that is true. You can search pretty much any kid you want whenever you want. And it's totally it's totally fine. Now, well, I can actually I, let me jump yeah, in real please. quick because there's some specific language here that's relevant. The thing is that for the schools, they only require reasonable suspicion mm-hmm. of a violation of school policy or a concern for school safety. So reasonable suspicion is a much lower standard than a police officer's requirement for what's called probable cause. And that's not, and by the way, that's not going to be probable cause of a school violation. They actually need probable cause of a criminal violation in order to conduct that kind of search. So um, all of all of the folks you were talking to were, were spot on that you as a principal just have so much more leeway because you're a loco parentis. Mm-hmm. You know, think about whether or not parents need probable cause to search your room or to search your your backpack. Of course not. They don't need actually technically reasonable suspicion. But for you as a public official, reasonable suspicion is much lower. Yeah. So let me just make this kind of silly because I think it's important to illustrate. If a second grader is walking down the hall, throwing a bouncy ball around and it's breaking lights or knocking ceiling tiles or, or whatever the case may be, and it's or it's just annoying and they have a little <laughs> a little bell that they're ringing all the time. It, yeah. it is a it is perfectly appropriate for the principal to go search the kid's backpack and get the bouncy ball or the bell and and confiscate it because it's disrupting school. So sure. it that is so silly and simple that it it just it boggles my mind why that didn't happen in this situation because the there is a a push for students to have privacy for their 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 stuff to be um, respected and not be going through it, and I totally agree with that. But at the same time, if you have a suspicion of something, then 
you need to act on it. And clearly, because they had a conversation with the counselor and the uh, parents, there was a concern. And really, that should be addressed in, in all the ways that you can. And instead of making it a punitive issue, you can very easily say, this is something that we need to do to ensure that you and everyone else is safe. So we need to look in your backpack. And if you then won't allow us to do that, then you definitely are suspended then, until you come right. back, right? Well, because then you've ratcheted it up one more level. Right. Now, for the purposes of this conversation, again, we always go back to your warning of these are early days and we're still yeah. learning a lot about what took place. But in the preliminary reporting, we're seeing suggestions that part of the decision-making on the part of the school was that this is a young man who had no disciplinary record. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from their perspective, this was kind of a, hate to say this, but a first strike, right? That, that these concerns had been raised. And then the other thing, and, and I'll be fascinated to see when more information about this is made available, is that the parents responded to the reports by the teachers by saying, number one, they're a family that enjoys going to shooting ranges and that, that shooting is part of their family activity. And so the search was innocent because it was just part of that family hobby. It's number one. And then you've got Ethan saying to the counselor, apparently, that his drawing, which was deeply disturbing, um, was actually part of this video game design that he was working that he was, you know, actually part of his creative process. And, you know, what I think you're going to see is the, the counselor defending himself or herself. I'm not even sure which it was, but anyway, that the defense will be that this was a judgment call and they mm -hmm. found these responses, if not completely credible, at least enough to choose the route that they did. And then of course you've got the parents simply saying, we don't think he needs to leave school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, those are understandable in Alaska. Lots of people have guns. Half my students were on a military installation and their wow. parents go to, go to gun ranges all the time. And those are family activities. This is not that, that is not an unreasonable response from mm -hmm. a parent. Um, right. So, you know, it's, it's perfectly understandable to, to think, okay, this is, this is what they do. Not a big deal. Um, and you know, we don't know what the, what the school knew about Instagram posts and other things that, that he was doing. So let's talk about some of those warning signs and how, you know, we don't know if they knew about this, but if they did, it, it adds credence to why they should have taken more action. If they didn't know about it, then you can understand why perhaps some action was not taken, maybe, if you think about it. So what, what were the warning signs electronically that we saw? Well, I, was going to, I was going to put a big, huge butt <laughs> into this conversation um, because it's not like the two things that the teachers reported were the only things. Right. Right. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of ambiguity that, needs to be sorted out because just as a footnote, tragically, when these things kind of arise, you've got people posting fake Instagram accounts that purport to be by the individual involved. And, and that bespeaks its own special kind of sickness, which we can 
talk about in another episode. But it does seem like there's legitimate evidence that this individual, Ethan, did a couple of different really disturbing Instagram posts prior to the event, to, to the murders of these kids. And, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is that we've got both public evidence, right? And we've got private evidence. And so here's an individual who puts up a couple of Instagram posts, one of which is celebrating the fact that he was given the handgun that he used as an early Christmas present and basically telling people who saw the post, ask me anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, Jethro, getting to this idea of being in a gun culture or, you know, that this could be an extension or part of a legitimate family hobby, maybe it's not instantly threatening to see that. Although, again, this is a 15-year-old kid who's kind of celebrating that he's gotten this incredibly dangerous object as a Christmas present. So, you know, you think at least an eyebrow would be raised. And then the other Instagram post that was apparently put online was him referencing a quote by Robert Oppenheimer that he associated with the development of the atomic bomb. And it's from, uh, the, um, I always would screw this up, but basically I am a destroyer of worlds quote in which he's talking about, you know, obviously the guilt he feels for having developed this weapon. And then below that Oxford, and I'll see you tomorrow or see you tomorrow Oxford. So you know, when you put those two things together, I think the red flags go up quite a bit. Question is who saw that? How many mm-hmm. people saw it? Who would be in a position to say anything? I mean, they were public posts, but they weren't apparently seen by a ton of people. And then we can segue, I'd love to get your response to that, but then we can segue into the issue of quote unquote, private digital evidence, which is that on his own phone, he apparently recorded a couple of videos the night before in which he explicitly talked about shooting schoolmates in the high school. So we've got two different immediate pools of evidence. The first one is the only one you could have any thought about the school being aware of. But with the second one, you fold in the parents. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a huge issue in this case. Yeah. And, you know, we can we can talk about the parents' situation also later because there's also some crazy evidence there that's been reported. Okay. Um, yeah. but, but first, on the Instagram posts, that, you know, a, a 15-year-old is is okay to have a social media account, you know, but as we've talked about before, they're over 13. So, so they can do that. However, it again goes to that question of maturity of whether or not kids can handle that. Now, wondering whether his parents follow him on Instagram, do they know that he even made these posts? Um, Do they care? Do they think this is inappropriate? Were they encouraging him to do it? None of those things we know the answer to, but they all add up to that whole conversation around whether or not kids have devices and whether or not they have social media accounts. And, you know, as, as we've said many times, if your kids have social media accounts, you need to know what they are and know what they're posting. Um, because they're under 18, they're still in your purview of one teaching them and two, making sure that they're not doing things that are against the law, inappropriate, or, 
will reflect poorly on you. And so then how many kids were following this kid? We don't know. And we don't know if it was, you know, him with no Instagram followers and he's just putting this out there, or if there are two or three that are his best buds and they're joking and always, you know, making inappropriate comments as 15 year olds are, are want to do. Right. <laughs> and so, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of those things we just don't know the answers to, but those signs are out there and we, and we need to be aware of them and kids need to know when they see that kind of stuff out there, how important it is to bring that to the attention of, of the school personnel to the attention of parents so that people know. And there, there are rumors also that some kids knew something was going down and chose to stay home, which if, if you're choosing to stay home because you're afraid of what might happen at school and you don't say anything to the school to protect other kids, I mean, that's a big uh, missed opportunity as well. And something that sure. uh, we just need to do a better job educating our kids, making sure they know that this is how you respond if you see something on social media so that people can have a chance to do something. I, you know, Jethro, I'm really glad you pointed that out because that, that seemed to me to be an important topic. And you and I have used the phrase, um, a, a culture of cyber safety in mm -hmm. this podcast a number of different times. And one of the things that tragically, I think these school shootings are forcing us to confront is the idea that we can no longer simply rely on the school organization or even yeah. law enforcement to keep us all safe because number one, the culture has changed so dramatically, which is in and of itself, very tragic. I mean, just, just that societal change is heartrending. But at the same time, another way to look at this is that the school and honestly law enforcement, we would have legitimate questions about whether or not we want them to be able to do this. But they don't have the resources to monitor everything that's taking place on social media. So we need to get to a place where the member, all of the members of a school community understand that they have a role in the safety of that community. And, and that if, you know, I hate to use this phrase because it, it feels so Orwellian, but as they say in the New York subways all the time, if you see something, say something. If there's something that does not feel right, that you think might be indicative of a potential danger, then there is an obligation as a member of a community to say something. Yeah, I mean, that, that part is really, really challenging. One, I certainly don't want the police monitoring everything that everybody posts online. I don't think that's the right way to do it. Um, I think that's a bad use of their time and ability. Number two... I want people to feel comfortable confronting the situation, whether that's confronting the person directly and saying, posting this is not okay for this reason. And mm -hmm. in a private message or out in public, you know, being able to, to address that with people in a learning tone, not a, you're going to be in trouble, I'm going to punish you type of way. Um, I think that that's really, really important. And I've seen where that works effectively, how powerful it can be that people can completely change their behavior and say, oh, I didn't realize that that wasn't appropriate. Thank you for letting me know. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't always happen, of course. And people, you know, just get more angry and go, go back at it. But if we have that as a culture, 
then that can happen. But if we don't have that as a culture, then it's not going to. And, you know, I've had several instances in my school where kids have said or done something inappropriate online and kids never reported it for fear of being a snitch or a tattletale or whatever the case may be. And kids got hurt because of that. And kids that didn't need to be hurt got hurt. You know, kids who are filming fights happening and not turning that video evidence in to help prevent this kind of stuff from happening again. Kids who are taunting and mocking other kids and nobody is saying anything because these things do build up and there there's an opportunity to prevent the heartache that comes. And it, if that's not your culture, then kids aren't going to do it. And it needs to be the culture so that we can intervene before it needs to be a disciplinary conversation at which I believe the counselor in this situation was probably trying to do that and mm-hmm. probably didn't go far enough. Yeah. And, and we don't have any desire to engage in 2020 hindsight, which is mm-hmm. you know, always the risk when these kinds of things arise. Um, I think if anything, we're just focusing on the concept of foresight, right? right. How can we be prepared? How can we better empower both administrators and the rest of the school community to make, you know, hopefully better decisions down the road, because this will not be the last time that we confront these particular kinds of issues. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, as you said, all of the show notes, uh, in, you know, the show notes are filled with outlines of different issues that we want to cover as time goes forward. The in-school search and, and the threatening drawings um, are interesting. Number one, because it, it shows the level of observation that the teachers were engaged in. And then the other thing with respect to the drawing is that apparently there's some evidence that uh, Ethan had tried to destroy portions of the image by scribbling over it, but a quick thinking teacher had actually taken a photo of it before uh, that occurred. So there's, there's two now versions of that. This is, you know, I I think administrators and educators need to be aware of the amount of evidence that is being created in these situations by people involved. Obviously, that's one example. Another thing, which I think we're going to start seeing more and more of, are instances in which children who are basically hiding for their lives are going to now start using their mobile devices to create evidence. Uh, this case had one of the most gripping versions of that, of a student who was shooting a video in a classroom while this was all going on and somebody knocked on the door and there's a conversation with the person on the other side of the door and whoever it was used the word bro as part of his response. And the students said, wait, no way a law enforcement officer would use that word. And they all fled out the window. And, and fortunately that classroom was safe, but it later turned out in fact, that it was a local law enforcement officer who was trying to reassure the kids. But, you know, I've been curious to see, it's not sort of directly relevant to the issues that the schools are facing, but I'm curious to see whether those in the moment videos and so forth, as they become more common will affect this discourse. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think they have to because they they show a, a different side of it that we're not we're not privy to. And I you know, I think as more and more kids have phones, I, I don't think I know as more and more kids have phones, more and more angles and perspectives of these types of things are going to continue to come out. You know, you you mentioned that that teacher took a picture of it and a question comes up is did she use her personal cell phone to take a picture oh, of that right. or did she use a school issued device and was that an appropriate thing to do and did she actually need to take a picture of it to be able to show what it was or could she have just confiscated the paper or you know all those questions come up and it makes it very difficult to be a teacher or a counselor or a principal in a school because you, we don't know how you're going to be judged for that later on right and and what the fallout is going to be on you personally because of an action that you did or did not take. And in in other situations that I've seen, teachers have gotten in trouble for taking pictures or videos of students on their personal devices, um, even though it was probably a good thing that they did. And, and that's not necessarily you know, what you want to be doing. And, and so there's so many questions here that we just don't know the answers to. There's so many nuances and different things that make, make you second guess in the moment. And that is what I'm really concerned about is that second guessing in the moment makes you not confident enough to do the right thing because we haven't created a culture of cyber security or cyber safety in our schools. So we're not thinking about these things enough for us to be able to make these gut calls in the moment. Well, it's certainly a good chunk of the work that you and I are trying to do is to, yeah. you know, provide people with the tools to have those conversations. And I think your point is really fascinating. This idea of, okay, so what device does that teacher have in her hand at that particular moment? What, what's her thought process? You know, and, and obviously we're surrounded with this idea of creating evidence. Now we all know what the phones can do and the role that that digital evidence can play. So clearly she was influenced by that, but as you correctly point out, there are layers to all of that decision-making that she's making. And so one of the obvious takeaways from this is that the more conversations there are about these particular kinds of situations beforehand, the better, you know, because obviously you're right. If you've got a professional development uh, course that is telling educators, don't take photos because you might be violating FERPA, for instance. Mm -hmm. Well, one of their exceptions to violating FERPA, maybe if you're really, you know, you're scared, you're concerned about what this might mean for the school. And believe me, this is going to raise everybody's threat level considerably. Yeah, you know, this is just such a graphic case of how this stuff can go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really the the big tragedy here. It's a tragedy in and of itself, but even more, it's a tragedy that it's easy to look at and say, so much of this could have been prevented if we had paid attention to the warning signs, if we had looked and seen and taken action that in hindsight, we know we should have. But in the moment, what what were the things that prevented them from taking 
what in hindsight is appropriate action. And in other situations and other school shootings where, um, where kids have come specifically to the school with weapons to start shooting right away, this one, the, the gun was apparently in his backpack all morning long before he finally decided to take action. And that is the part that is really disturbing because, it, because he was, we think, in the counselor's office with a gun in his backpack talking about how the counselor was concerned about him making good choices. And, yeah. and he still went and did it. So there was an intervention that happened and it still, it, it still resulted in that. And, you know, that is really scary for everyone because how can right. you, how can you trust that the kid doesn't already have something? Um, well, you, in the future, you, the simple way you do that, of course, is by the appropriate searches, which right. we talked about. Look, you know, this, this then brings us squarely to the issue of parenting, right? Mm. Because, you know, one of the pieces of evidence that's going to pop up poster children for, you know, bad parenting magazine is going to be, you know, the fact that when there was some notification, apparently from the kid that he had been caught searching for ammunition, the mother texted back, you know, LOL, you know, don't get caught next time or learn how not to get caught, which you know, okay, fine. We can talk about gun culture, but then there's also some broader conversation to be had about what message that gives the kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I, I, I spent 23 years in Vermont. I totally respect people who use weapons for hunting. I cook game all the time. I know where it comes from. I have no illusions about that. And it's all well and good if, if there's some responsibility, but this is an aspect that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. Yeah. Well, I don't know what to say. Yeah. I mean, and this is where we, in our, in our intro, um, we talk about, um, you know, the, the use and misuse of digital devices and uh, how to navigate our increasingly high tech world. I mean, this is really, you know, the parents texting that kind of stuff to the kids, um, uh, parents encouraging their kids to, to go around the, um, the, the safety focused rules that exist in schools. Um, you know, those are really challenging questions and really, uh, difficult things to figure out. And I am forever going to be on the side of parents being responsible for their children and, uh, always going yeah. to be against anything that takes away their ability to be parents, even if they're doing a bad job of it. I mean, th th there are very few instances where I think parents should not be fully involved in their kid's life. And, and this is one of those situations where it's like the parent really needs help if that's what you're texting to your kid after a situation like that. LOL, don't get caught. I mean, that's, that's not... That's not a collaborative and supportive way to be a parent with the place that is watching your kid for seven to eight hours a day. Um, and yeah. and so the, the appropriate thing in my mind is that's not okay. If you're going to search for that stuff, do it at home. We don't care, obviously, but you can't do that at school because it makes everybody scared and for good reason because of what has happened in our country 
over the last 20 plus years. Yep, absolutely true. And and I think it's, you know, as we go forward, Jethro, in terms of talking about some of the stuff, it continues to underscore, underscore questions of, you know, mobile device use by students in the schools. Uh, it raises issues of whether or not there needs to be even more surveillance of kids. I mean, one of the things that already investigators are pouring over out of the hallway surveillance videos, you know, which illustrate far too clearly that was going on. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be issues about whether or not we need more investment in automated programs that will give schools the ability to monitor student social media. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue it raises issues for the tech companies if they you know, they can, if they choose to do so, know both the age of the people using their services, you could tighten that up considerably and run some interesting algorithms for certain kinds of images or certain areas. This is a solvable problem that they don't necessarily want to solve. And I understand there's all kinds of implications in, in looking at those solutions. But that it's a discussion that we at least should have at some, point, you know, when you, when you think about what took place last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, you're starting to bring up an idea of liability. And the fascinating thing to me from this was that the parents were, um, were, uh, an arrest warrant was put out for them and then they fled and, and we won't talk about all that, but the fact that parents could be held liable in this situation um, was really surprising to me because that was the first time that I can recollect that I've heard of that. And as a principal, I've thought many times, this is definitely the sure. parents' fault and they should be liable for this situation. But yeah. I haven't ever pursued that um, be, because it just hasn't been something that has happened. And so we're talking about potential liability from the parents, from the school who didn't do enough to stop it, from the tech companies who you know, didn't take down his post or shadow ban him or whatever the, the case may be. Um, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot that's going to come out of this, um, because of the, the information that, that is out there about how all these different, different, like disparate areas came together to enable this to happen. Um, which none of those people, uh, as far as I can tell, except for the young man, wanted it to be such. Um, he was the only one who wanted it to happen. But it sounds like a lot of people certainly set him up for success in making it happen, which is yeah. just a major tragedy. Yeah, and even, even in the use of the word want, Jethro, I, you know, I think that, you know, it's easy to contemplate mental illness playing a role in all of this. And, and so that may well be part of the defense down the road, whether or not this was a desire that he could sanely conceive of. And we'll obviously leave that for a much later time. Look, I, I think that one of the topics that I've been following, and maybe we'll, we'll set up a show on this at some point, is, is the growing interest in lawsuits for negligent parenting. You know, because there's a ton of different potential causes of action that you and I have discussed terms of bullying and suicide and all of the rest of that. And this could, this may well play into that. 
the challenge, you know, as, as every plaintiff's lawyer will tell you is who's got the deepest pockets, you know, to actually make it worthwhile to do. There are plenty of parents you could sue and make a decent case, but if they have no resources, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly the insurance companies have done everything but disband in order to avoid any potential liability for these kinds of actions. So, you know, you will have a lot of people for that precise reason starting to look at the schools more aggressively because they do have insurance policies that could conceivably come up, or obviously the tech companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, honestly, we live in a culture in which Gun manufacturers are not liable for the misuse of their products. So how can we blame the tech companies, you know, when something like this happens? These, these are the really profound societal questions we need to discuss. Yeah, definitely. And, and when, when you hold a person responsible, um, if, if you hold them responsible by, by suing them and they don't have any money, then, you know, that doesn't accomplish anything because the money is, is how we resolve these kind of conflicts in, in our day and age. And, you know, in, in the show notes, there's an article about the Broward County uh, school district settling 52 lawsuits in the Parkland shooting for a total of $25 million. Um, Also very interesting. And, you know, school districts do have deep pockets and they are essentially um, limitless. I mean, Broward County is not going to, quote unquote, go out of business because they were sued into oblivion. And, and that's an issue that I think is worth uh, paying attention to as we go forward. Oh, it's, it's a huge issue. And at some point we'll want to have Scott Tennant back on to talk about that in this particular context. And it is worth noting, and I hope people will take this away from the show notes, that this is all very state specific. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in Michigan, there may be greater protections for the school officials than they were necessarily in Florida. And then of course, the particular relationship with all of the insurance companies is unique to each district. So this is a super complex area of law. I mean, a good example is that, you know, in Connecticut, a couple of lawsuits against the Sandy Hook school district were dismissed because there was no cause of action effectively mm-hmm. against the school. So it's all very, very varied, but we are a litigious society. There will be people who try to figure this out. And I think it's going to be an ongoing concern for school boards and for school districts and so forth. Yeah. And, you know, as, as we wrap up here, just want to um, remind everybody, cybertraps.com slash 100 is where the show notes will be. Um, and go check those out because there's a, there's a whole bunch, like I said, that we didn't get to, but really fascinating stuff to, uh, to think about and to research and um and, you know, it. if you'd like to have Fred or I come and talk with you or your school district or your group about this and, and some ways that you can put in some things to uh, prevent, also cybertraps.com, there's a contact page or centerforcyberethics.org. You can reach out to us there. And, and thanks for, for listening to this today. Great submission, Jethro. All righty, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends and variety including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, challenges to high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions 
or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us next week uh, with, or next Thursday, excuse me, with Joaquina Kankam, which is going to be a great conversation that talks about this some of, some of these similar things. 